This is the first part in a series that we are going through on Bible prophecy, where we are at the point in the events of Bible prophecy to discuss the issue of the rapture, and this is the first part in that series. We're talking about dispensational premillennialism. Premillennialism is the belief that Jesus' second coming will occur before he sets up his earthly kingdom and reigns for a thousand years. This is recorded in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, where the word pre, indicating before, and millennium, or mill and annum, for a thousand years, which is where we get the term pre-millennialism, before the thousand years. Um, it is my firm conviction that this is the only view of the millennium that makes sense of the text of Scripture. Now, we're not at the point where we're going to talk about the millennium itself and discuss why amillennialism and postmillennialism are completely—they have no basis in the text of Scripture. Historically, throughout church history, from the beginning, it has always been pre-millennialism until Catholicism and Calvinism, which came out of Catholicism, started affecting those things. But we're not talking about that today. Dispensational premillennialism is a particular system of interpreting the scriptures that significantly differs from what the apostles and early Christians believed. One of the prominent differences is that it places the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation period and makes it a separate and distinct event from the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And before we dive into the meat of this lesson, though, I want to quote John Walvoord. He is one of the leading defenders of the pre-tribulation rapture theory and is often quoted by others who defend it. Listen to this quote from him. John Walvoord said, quote, If the term church includes saints of all ages, then it is self-evident that the church will go through the tribulation as all agree that there will be saints in this time of trouble. If, however, the term church applies only to a certain body of saints, namely the saints of this present dispensation, then the possibility of the translation of the church before the tribulation is possible and even probable. That's John Walvoord in his book, The Rapture Question, pages 21 and 22. So according to John Walvoord, if I can demonstrate from the scriptures that saints or believers of all ages are included in the same body of believers, i.e. the church, the ecclesia, the called out assembly, then it is self-evident, he says, that the church will go through the tribulation. And before this lesson is over, I'm going to prove that. But before that, we need to take a look at the system behind the pre-tribulation rapture theory and the issue as a whole. A lot of issues regarding the debate are not even framed correctly by pastors, teachers, preachers, because of bias or ignorance. So in order to fully understand the differing views and arguments for or against a pre-tribulation rapture, you have to have a basic understanding of dispensationalism. You cannot even understand the debate about the timing of the rapture without understanding dispensationalism. And this is even admitted by numbers of pre-tribulation scholars themselves, as well as other scholars. Craig Keener, who is not a pre-tribber, just letting you know, said, quote, Inherent in the term dispensationalism is the idea that history, along with the future, can be divided into distinct periods of time called dispensations. It is impossible to fully understand the pre-trib rapture position without understanding this concept. Now, the fact that a pre-tribulation view of the rapture is a result of a system of interpretation of the entirety of Scripture is completely understood by most pre-tribulation scholars. The average pastor or teacher doesn't know that. They think it's just a result of studying the Bible, even though that is not how they came to the idea themselves. They were taught it by somebody else. 
It's just like the false teaching of eternal security or cessationism. They did not find this in the Bible. They heard it from a sermon, a book. Somebody told it to them. They did not get it from sitting down in a vacuum with nobody else and just reading it and being like, you know what? The Bible clearly says this. Craig Blomberg, a notable biblical scholar, had this to say about the matter. Quote, the entire theological system of which the pre-tribulational rapture formed a small part came to be called dispensationalism. End quote. John Walvoord, who again is one of the most notable pre-tribulation scholars and ardent dispensationalist, understood and stated this in his books. Quote, Generally speaking, the pre-tribulational view is followed by those who consider premillenarianism a system of Bible interpretation. And this is not just something that has to do with eschatology or end-time prophecy. This is an entire system of looking at the scriptures, as some other quotes we are going to go into, and then, of course, later in this lesson, the scriptures themselves, just showing you this is not my opinion. This is what scholars who are pre-tribulationists say. But one of the problems with John Walver making this statement here that we just said is that he considers dispensationalism synonymous with premillenarianism. And in other places, as in his book, The Rapture Question, I've got several of his books, he states clearly that the issue is dispensationalism and that a pre-trib view is a logical induction as opposed to a clear statement from the scriptures. And I'm going to quote him here in just a few minutes on that. In other words, you interpret the Bible to teach a preacher rapture because that is the result of the beliefs that you already believe are in the Bible. This is called eisegesis. Not exegesis, eisegesis. Or reading into the Bible what is not there. You believe it, you look in the scriptures, you find it, and interpret that in light of it. Walverd admitted that his view is a logical induction. In page 181 of his book, The Rapture Question, he says, quote, one of the problems that face both pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism is the fact that their point of view is an induction based on scriptural facts rather than an explicit statement from the Bible. And here we see a major error on the part of John Walford, as well as many other pages in his books, as well as those who blindly quote him. They are not even framing the discussion accurately. The difference between trying to prove pre-tribulationism versus trying to prove post-tribulationism is that in order to prove a pre-tribulation rapture, you have to prove from the scriptures that God said he is going to remove the church prior to the seven-year tribulation. That is what they have to show is explicitly stated in the Bible. You're claiming that there is an event prior to the tribulation. You need to prove that that event is going to happen prior to the tribulation. It's the one thing that makes your view differ from a post-tribulation view. The one thing. The timing of the rapture. And Walvert admits that that is not in the Bible. In his book, The Rapture Question, page 182, he says, quote, While both pre-tribulationists and post-tribulationists have strained to find some specific reference in support of their views, most adherents of either view usually concede that there is no explicit reference. Now you say, well, he said post-tribulationist too. Well, that's right. But again, Walver makes a major error here in how he frames the issue. While he admits that pre-tribulationists have no explicit reference in the New Testament to support a pre-tribulation timing of the rapture, he makes the mistake of thinking that the same is true for post-tribulationism, which is absolutely false. Why? Because he's framing it that way. Now, I'm not insinuating that he's lying. I just know that he is looking at the scriptures through the lens of dispensationalism and can't see past the end of his nose. I know dispensationalism because it's what I was discipled in and taught until God corrected me. But all that is needed from the scriptures to support post-tribulationism is three things. One, that the church is on the earth prior to the tribulation. The tribulation occurs on the earth and that there are not explicit statements from God that the church is removed prior to the tribulation. And all three of these are admitted by pre-tribulation scholars themselves. The problem 
is that they are looking at Scripture through the lens of a system of dispensational thinking, and so no other conclusion than pre-tribulationism seems possible. And, and I'm going to read some quotes here in a minute that will show you that's exactly what they think. So let's take a second to consider the history of this. While some have strained to prove that the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is an old teaching— um, people like March, Mark Hitchcock, who co-wrote a book with uh, John Malver, in his own book, he tries to say several things about it. Many scholars, however, openly admit that its origins are relatively new to Christian history. Harry Ironside admitted this. He says, quote, In fact, until brought to the fore through the writings and the preaching and teaching of a distinguished ex-clergyman, Mr. J. N. Darby, in the early part of the last century, it is scarcely to be found in a single book or sermon throughout a period of 1,600 years. If any doubt this statement, let them search as the writer has in measure done. The remarks of the so-called fathers, both pre- and post-Nicene, the theological treatises of the scholastic divines, Roman Catholic writers of all shades of thought, the literature of the Reformation, the sermons and expositions of the Puritans, and the general theological works of the day, he will find, quote, the mystery conspicuous by its absence. That's Harry Ironside in his book, The Mysteries of God, 6th edition, page 50. So, this is quite a candid admission from Harry Ironside because he was a staunch defender of dispensationalism and pre-tribulationism, which are necessarily linked. One scholar stated this clearly, that these two are, are linked. He says, quote, 19th century dispensational premillennialism developed the first unambiguous articulation of a pre-tribulational rapture, thereby separating the rapture and Christ's second coming into two discrete events. Now, teachers have put forth the idea of Morgan Edwards. Tim LaHaye puts him forth. Pseudo-Ephraim, Mark Hitchcock, and several others have put that forth, or others, to try to say that the origin of dispensationalism and a pre-tribulation rapture necessarily, or people will just quote and say the pre-tribulation rapture, absent of dispensationalism, not understanding the connection, and they try to say that these are not traced to John Darby in the early 19th century. They f and if you actually go read these writings, which you can do, just Google them, and you can read them, they fail under any basic scrutiny. And even most pre-tribulationists do not accept them as having taught a pre-tribulation rapture, especially pseudo-Ephraim. Craig Keener summarized the facts, saying, quote, In any case, whatever his precedence, Darby was the first teacher to circulate pre-tribulationism, with possibly one or two exceptions not much earlier than Darby. Those who claim earlier proponents of a pre-tribulational rapture generally have to read the idea into those proponents the way they have to read the idea into the New Testament. Now, reading regarding the origins of dispensationalism, Charles Ryrie, a notable dispensational teacher, you know, Charles Ryrie as in the Ryrie Study Bible, openly acknowledged that dispensationalism was not taught by the early Christians. He says, quote, In discussing the matter of the origins of dispensationalism, opponents of the teaching say that dispensationalists assert that the system was taught in a post-apostolic times. Informed dispensationalists do not claim that. And so whenever he says that, he's meaning that those who know what they're talking about know that the early Christians did not teach any form of dispensationalism. And so what I mean by the early Christians are the so-called, quote, anti-Nicene fathers. These were Christian bishops and teachers before Roman Catholicism began in the 4th century. You know, these are the people discipled by the disciples. And while they are not in any way an infallible commentary on the Scriptures by any means, one thing that they were all uniformly agreed on is that there was no distinction between the second coming and the rapture, in their view. Even though they disagreed about other things, specifically views of the millennium, they all agreed that there was no such thing as a pre-tribulation rapture. They considered the gathering together of the elect of God at the second coming. And it, it simply was not even a concept in their thinking. And isn't that strange? Whenever Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by the Apostle John, the author of the Revelation, now, Tim LaHaye, author of the Left Behind series, 
said this, quote, second and third century Christians concluded that the Lord would rapture his church at the end of that time. And in context, he's referring to the tribulation. So Tim LaHaye, Mr. Left Behind himself, acknowledges that the second and third century Christians did not hold to a pre-tribulation rapture. They were post-tribulationists. In fact, it is objectively known that the oldest eschatological perspective of Christian belief was what is called historic or classic premillennialism, which is post-tribulationism. And this is in distinction from dispensational or pre-tribulational premillennialism. David Reagan, a pre-tribulation prophecy teacher, stated, quote, The oldest viewpoint that is regarding the rapture is called historic premillennialism. This view is based on a literal interpretation of what the Bible says will happen in the end times. One of its distinctive features is that it placed the rapture of the church at the end of the tribulation, combining it with the second coming as one event. Our friend from earlier, Mr. John Walverb, admitted this himself. He says, quote, The preponderance of evidence seems to support the concept that the early church did not clearly hold to a rapture as preceding the end-time tribulation period. He goes on to say, Payne, who is a, he was, this is an article he's written analyzing the view of a different scholar, he says, Payne has correctly analyzed the writings of the early church fathers in assuming that they should be classified as post-tribulational. David Reagan actually states that at least some of the early Christians viewed any other view than a pre- post-trib view as heretical. David Reagan says, quote, This, that is the post-trib view in context, is the only systematic view of end-time events that existed during the first 300 years of the church. Justin Martyr, who was born in 100 AD, went so far in his writings on the subject so as to suggest that anyone with a different viewpoint was heretical. Now, at this point, many pre-tribulationists try to then discount any validity of the views of the early Christians. They say, quote, well, they were just a bunch of simple-minded people who don't know as much as us, or something of the like. And this is usually stated from ignorance by those who haven't even read any of the early Christian writings. Many scholars disagree with this conceited dismissal of their writings. David Reagan, who, if you remember, is a pre-tribulationist, said that you can't simply dismiss the early Christian writings out of a hand. He said, quote, Yet their concept of end-time events should not be dismissed out of hand as crude or primitive, for anyone who has studied the prophetic scriptures will have to admit that the church father's viewpoint presents a plain-sense summary of the Bible's teachings about the end times. That's coming from a pre-tribulationist who actually knows the writings of the early Christians. Robert Gundry actually took it farther when he said, quote, No, it is simply not true that the anti-Nicene eschatology lacked maturity and detail. For example, in long eschatological passages in the writings of Irenaeus, Hippolytus, and Lactantius, we confront full and challenging discussions concerning Daniel's 70th week, the 1260 days, the abomination of desolation, the ten toes, the mixture of iron and clay, the ten horns, the little horn, the antichrist, the false prophet, the apostasy, the reappearance of Elijah, the restoration of worship in the Jewish temple, the significance of 666, comparison of Daniel and Revelation, Babylon, Armageddon, the first resurrection, the rapture, the second advent, millennial conditions, the final resurrection, and the last judgment. The only significant eschatological matter of which the early fathers were incognizant appears to be a pre-tribulational rapture. And isn't that interesting? The only aspect of prophecy that the early Christians did not have any awareness of was a pre-tribulational rapture. They put it at the second coming. I would also warn those who would still persist in completely disregarding history and the writings of the early Christians that in order to do so, you have to dismiss the disciples of the apostles themselves. John the Apostle, who authored Revelation, mind you, discipled Polycarp. Polycarp then discipled Irenaeus. Irenaeus Irenaeus then discipled Hippolytus. We can literally go pick up copies of their teachings, like Irenaeus' Against Heresies, where he single-handedly in the 2nd century fended off Gnosticism. And we can read about their doctrine. Do you think that it has weight? Not authority in the sense of Scripture, absolutely. But weight? When considering that there is a direct connection to the Apostle John? It is simply a ridiculous clinging to bias to dismiss their views out of hand. 
Now, as I stated earlier, there is not a single verse in the entire Bible that actually states or teaches explicitly a pre-tribulation rapture. And this is not my opinion either. It is admitted by pre-tribulation scholars themselves. Tim LaHaye said, quote, One objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that no one passage of Scripture teaches the two aspects of a second coming separated by the tribulation. This is true. Richard Mayhew said, quote, The pre-trib theory is not taught directly in Scripture, and pre-tribulationists still have problems to solve in regard to their position. There's another quote from him. He said, quote, Perhaps the position of pre-tribulationism is correct, although its proof at times has been logically invalid or at least unconvincing. That's from two notable pre-tribulation scholars. This is being admitted by pre-tribulation teachers, the ones people quote from. Remember John Walverb, who is called the Dean of Pre-Tribulationism by Tim LaHaye? He admitted that there is no explicit passage of the Bible that teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. He said it was an induction. That means it is the result of a system of belief that is then used to interpret the Bible, much like Calvinism or Catholicism. Teachers are not coming to the conclusion of a pre-tribulation rapture because they read it in their Bible in a vacuum. They are told certain ideas, a couple of verses are shown to them, out of context, of course, and they believe it. They spend the rest of their lives reading the Bible through the lens of what they have been taught instead of getting their interpretation from what the text plainly says. Now, without belaboring the point too much right now, since we're going to go through the arguments one by one over the next couple of weeks, if you asked a pre-tribulation teacher for a passage that teaches the pre-tribulation rapture, you would get one of a number of things. They will point to passages that teach about the event of the rapture itself, what it's like, what it consists of, etc. Well, that's nice. I completely agree. That's not what I asked. Show me a passage that says God removes the church before the tribulation. That's what I need. A passage that explicitly states the timing of the rapture, the one thing that differs your view from any other view of the rapture. Now, they'll do that, and they will just tell you stuff about the rapture. You know, they'll point to 1 Corinthians 15, and they'll say, this is what it's like. They'll point to 1 Thessalonians 4, saying, this is what it's like. They, and they can't find one passage that says he is going to take them out before the tribulation. Now, they'll do that, or they will string a series of other interpretations or assumptions together to then, quote-unquote, conclude that the rapture must be before the tribulation. And this is where the idea of applying things like the, um, the no one knows the day of the hour to the rapture, that's where the idea of that comes from. Even though in order to do that, you have to ignore context and grammar and even disagree with most pre-tribulation scholars who know that's an impossible application of that passage. John Walverb and Tim LaHaye both don't do that. Another popular argument that is used, which is going to be, it's one of my favorite ones to discuss with people, is Revelation 3.10 and being kept from the hour of temptation. This is Tim LaHaye's favorite verse, by the way, but even John Walverd admitted that it's probably not what they try to make it. It also wasn't even once in church history interpreted that way until after dispensationalism had already been formulated. Why? Because you needed somewhere to find it. Like I said, if you believe something is true, you'll eventually find it in the Bible if you're not just focusing on what the text says. It's called confirmational bias, a presupposition. You're reading something into the text that is not there. Eternal security teachers do it all the time. So what is dispensationalism? Let's get into the meat of this. Dispensationalism is a system. Just like any system, it seems correct when you are inside it. Especially when you don't listen to anything from anybody who doesn't agree with you. Pastors and teachers have a tendency to keep themselves in an echo chamber. And really because of this, they never hear anything that could correct them. You know, whenever you refuse to actually examine and try to understand from the best scholars who say the other views or anything contrary to you, the one thing you will guarantee is you will never be corrected if indeed you are wrong. You have to remember that pre-tribulationism and dispensationalism are necessarily linked. And again, I've quoted people showing you that's not my opinion. In discussing the one you are discussing, the system from which it originates. And this will become clear as we discuss what dispensationalism believes in the next section. Many scholars have come out of this system, 
as well as me, I'm not a scholar, but this is my background. This is what I was grounded in. I know it backwards and forwards. And one such scholar who was corrected about dispensationalism had this to say about it. This is Philip Morrow. He said, quote, In concluding these introductory remarks, I would point out that this modern system of dispensational truth is a cause of division and controversy between the followers of Christ, who ought to be, at this time of crisis, solidly united against the mighty forces of unbelief and apostasy, and further, that it tends to bring the vital truth of our Lord's second coming into discredit with many, because it associates that great Bible doctrine with various speculative details for which no scriptural support can be found. That's Philip Morrow. And that last statement of his is very interesting. He directly points out how dispensationalism affects beliefs about the second coming. Now, Philip Morrow goes on to say, he says, quote, It is mortifying to remember that I not only held and taught these novelties myself, but that I even enjoyed a complacent sense of superiority because thereof, and regarded with feelings of pity and contempt those who had not received the new light and were unacquainted with this up-to-date method of, quote, rightly dividing the word of truth, end quote. What a slur is this upon the spiritual understanding of the ten thousands of men mighty in the scriptures whom God gave as teachers to his people during all the Christian centuries before dispensational truth or dispensational error was discovered. And what an affront to the thousands of men of God of our own day, workmen that need not be ashamed, who have never accepted the newly invented system. Yet I was among those who eagerly embraced it, upon human authority solely, for there is none other, and who earnestly pressed it upon my fellow Christians. I am deeply thankful, however, that the time came, it was just ten years ago, when the inconsistencies and self-contradictions of the system itself, and above all, the impossibility of reconciling its main positions with the plain statements of the Word of God, became so glaringly evident that I could not do otherwise than renounce it. That's Philip Morrow. I can tell you from experience that is exactly how you look on others when you believe dispensationalism or any unbiblical system of interpretation for that matter. You become arrogant and look down on others who don't have the quote-unquote understanding that you have come to. And that's because it's a fleshly understanding of the Scriptures instead of the actual spiritual understanding of the Scriptures. So what exactly does dispensationalism teach? What are the core elements of this belief system? Well, Timothy Weber, who has a doctorate in church history, aptly describes its beginnings and core teachings. Here's a quote, and this is a lengthy quote, but this is, summarizes all of dispensationalism in a nutshell, and you will see the direct connection to pre-tribulationism. Quote, Darby's mind remained open on these new ideas for another decade, but by 1840 he had constructed an elaborate dispensational system that supported and explained them. Darby's version of futurist premillennialism divided history into distinct eras or dispensations in order to keep track of God's changing redemptive plan. But even more fundamental to his interpretation of the Bible was the conviction that God had two completely separate plans and peoples in the divine plan of redemption, one earthly, Israel, and one heavenly, the church. Thus, quote, rightly dividing the word of truth, end quote, meant keeping the passages that applied to the two plans clearly delineated. This interpretive rule of thumb led Darby to his striking innovations because he believed that God could work with only one of his peoples at a time. He insisted that Jesus must rapture the church before he can restart the prophetic clock and resume the second coming into two parts, Christ coming for his saints before the tribulation and with his saints after it, when he will defeat the devil and the Antichrist and establish the millennial kingdom. Darby also taught that since the church, as God's heavenly people, had no earthly prophecies of its own, there was no prophesied event between the present and the rapture of the church. Thus, it might occur at any time. In short, Darby's view of the any-moment pre-tribulation rapture allowed him to avoid the pitfalls of both attempting to predict a time for Christ's second advent and of trying to make sense out of the contemporary alarms of European politics with the Revelation as his guidebook. Darby was not deterred by the fact that before him, no millennialist, British or otherwise, had taught anything like his view of the rapture. 
he continued to teach his version of the futurist premillennialism in Britain, throughout Europe, and most significantly in the United States, where it had its greatest success. That's Timothy Weber. If you want a really good discussion on premillennialism in general and its history, read Timothy Weber's talk as it's recorded in Blomberg and Chung's book, um, A Case for Historic Premillennialism. His chapter is a really good summary of premillennialism as a system of thought in church history. Now, anyone who has ever heard some teacher or preacher teach on the pre-tribulation rapture would immediately recognize all of the ideas that lead someone to believe it in Darby's teachings. That's what led Darby to start teaching it. It wasn't scripture. It was certain ideas that he arbitrarily believed, such as the idea that God can only do one thing at a time, apparently, that led him to conclude that the rapture must be separated from the second coming. It's an induction, just like John Walverd said. Now, what's amazing to me is that scholars know these facts and history even better than I do and can still say that it's not shocking. People are teaching these ideas that have nothing to do with over 1,800 years of Christianity as though, it's or- as though it is orthodoxy. But we'll address the counter-arguments regarding history made by them in just a few minutes. First, let's consider some of these points from the scriptures. First, why did Darby feel like he needed to divide up time into dispensationalism, into dispensations or distinct quote-unquote eras in the first place? The scripture gives us only two objective distinctions, Old Covenant and New Covenant, and this is even how the Bible is presented to us. One reason that these separate dispensations were created was to explain certain passages of scripture away. One writer stated, quote, And it would have seemed anomalous for Pentecostal churches to embrace dispensational distinctives since one of the bases for separating church history into different ages was the conviction that the charismatic gifts ceased within the end of the apostolic era. You want to know where cessationism came from? This is where it came from. Error begets error when it comes to teaching doctrine. It's a ripple effect. If you want to know why the false teachings of eternal security and cessationism are prevalent in the church today, then look to dispensationalism. You can recognize dispensationalism and how they are defended. If you point to the Sermon on the Mount and ask why it teaches that believers' forgiveness of sins is conditioned on forgiving others, a dispensationalist says, well, the Sermon on the Mount is mainly for the Jews. You know, it's the constitution of the kingdom in the future. And that's literally what I was taught back in the day at Bible college. If you ask about spiritual gifts, especially tongues, a dispensationalist will answer, well, that the, the Jewish apostolic sign gifts ended when the apostles died or when the canon of Scripture was completed. What is so ironic to me is that there are teachers who defend wholeheartedly the fact that eternal security is a false teaching, that cessationism is a false teaching, and they still teach pre-tribulationism. In fact, they defend it the same way that the others defend those false teachings. I've believed all three, and I'm telling you this from experience. It's the same kind of way of defending things. You ask why Jesus says the disciples will see the Antichrist as the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, and the answer that it's referring to the Jews during the tribulation. Why does it sound familiar? You ask who the elect are that are being gathered in Matthew 24, and they say that's referring to the Jews at the end of the tribulation. It's dispensationalism. It's the same system and method of interpreting the Bible that leads people to believe eternal security and or cessationism. False teaching comes in groups because you end up having to interpret more and more passages of Scripture to protect your false idea that you are reading into the Bible. This reading into the Bible, instead of just focusing on what the text says, is exactly why many balked at Darby's novel beliefs when he first created them. Weber summarized saying, quote, Dispensationalists insisted that by rightly dividing the word of truth, the pre-tribulation rapture became obvious. For them, dispensationalism was the key to understanding the whole Bible, not just prophecy, and it was a bulwark against liberalism and the guarantee of orthodoxy. They held that all other approaches were seriously defective. The other premillennialists argued that Darby's view of the rapture was not explicitly taught in the Bible and was merely an inference based on other mistaken notions. They maintained that dispensationalism was a theological novelty created by Darby out of thin air and that, in short, its claims were pretentious and unsubstantiated by either the Bible or the history of Christian theology. 
You see, guys, this is not just my opinion. I'm standing with the weight of the early Christians who were discipled by the apostles themselves, the weight of church history outside of Catholicism, the weight of many conservative Christian scholars, and the plain sense reading of the Bible. Now, having discussed the background of the issue a little bit, let's take another look at John Walbert's quote that we read at the beginning, and let's get into the scriptures. He said, quote, If the term church includes saints of all ages, then it is self-evident that the church will go through the tribulation, as all agree that there will be saints in, his time of trouble, in this time of trouble. If, however, the term church applies only to a certain body of saints, namely the saints of this present dispensation, then the possibility of the translation of the church before the tribulation is possible and even probable. That's John Walver, The Rapture Question, pages 21 and 22. Remember, Walverd is a diehard dispensationalist, and we just read what John Darby taught. He taught that Israel and the church were completely separate for all history. That's why pre-tribulationists believe that God has to remove the church in order to do anything with the literal physical Israel again. It all comes to John Darby. But let's take Walverb at his own word. If we can show from the scriptures that saints from all ages are part of the church, quote-unquote, church, the assembly of God's people, the ecclesia, the group of called-out ones, then he says it is self-evident that the church must go through the tribulation. So let's think about that. According to dispensationalists and pre-tribulationists in general, the dispensation of law ended and God focused his attention on the church. This led to the quote-unquote church age or dispensation, where Israel has been moved to the side for a while. But is this an accurate description of the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant? Are there two distinct groups that God is just focusing on one at a time because apparently he can't multitask? If you're a pre-tribulationist, then you have to necessarily say yes in order for your interpretation to be true. It's not my opinion. That's John Walverbs. Now, the old covenant called the Law of Moses was given to a particular group at a particular time, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. After their deliverance and exodus from Egypt, they, as a nation, agreed to a covenant with God. In it was contained commandment for their civil laws, how their worship was to be regulated and done, and commandments regarding morality. However, this was all only temporary. The prophet Jeremiah stated, quote, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers, and the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33. He also says in Jeremiah 32, 40, quote, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts and that they shall not depart from me. A new covenant was coming that was, quote, with the house of Israel, end quote. And it was, quote, not according to the covenant, end quote, made with their ancestors. From our perspective today, we know that the law was given to prepare the way for the Messiah. The Apostle Paul stated in Galatians chapter 3, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. It's Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 25. Jesus himself stated that he came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He also came to institute the new covenant in his blood. Matthew 26, 28, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Hebrews 13, 20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now what then happened when Israel rejected their Messiah, who was the mediator of the new covenant? Were they still to be considered as, quote, the people of God? According to the Apostle Paul, the Jews who refused to believe were cut off from the olive tree of Israel. They were kicked out of Israel. And the Gentiles who did believe were, quote, grafted in to Israel. Here's the passage. Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 23. He says, 
And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell severity, but toward thee goodness, if thou continue in his goodness. Otherwise, thou also shalt be cut off, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be graft in, for God is able to graft them in again. So are there two bodies seen here, or one? The Jews who refused to believe in the Messiah were cut off from the true Israel of God. This is how Paul refers to the body of Jews who did accept their Messiah that also contains Gentiles who believed and were joined into it by faith. This is what we call the church. It is a mixed body. Paul talks about this, Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 through 16. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Paul goes out of his way to stress the importance of understanding the relationship between Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, he recounts how he even rebuked the apostle Peter for insinuating that there was any difference between the two. Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul has much to say about this issue. He says, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 13, quote, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision, in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So to what are the Gentile believers? made nigh by the blood of Christ, the commonwealth of Israel. The Jews who refused to believe were broken off and separated from the Israel of God. They are not considered true Jews in the sight of God anymore. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29, For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, Lord says, I know thy works, and tribulation, and poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews, and are not but are the synagogue of Satan. Historically, that has always been referencing unbelieving Jews. Revelation 3, 9. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. According to Romans chapter 2, verse 28 through 29, Paul says those are just Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, who have been broken off from Israel. Now, when Israel rejected their Messiah and the new covenant in his blood, the kingdom was taken from them, Christ said. He says, quote, Matthew 21 through 21, 43, he says, Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. This means that in order to belong to the people of God, a person does not have to join the physical nation of Israel and be circumcised anymore. Now they must repent of their sins and put their faith in the blood of Jesus. Galatians 3.14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3.26-29, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Jew and Gentiles have been made one body in Christ. There's not two bodies of redeemed people in history. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 20. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments containing ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household, singular, of God." and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostle Paul said that Gentile believers are fellow citizens with the saints and are now of the household of God. He did not say part of one of the bodies that belong to God. While there is only one saved body of believers at a time, this does not in any way necessitate that God is only doing one thing at a time. The Jews that have not accepted the gospel are still being watched over by God. Paul uses himself as an illustration in Romans 11 that God is still saving Jews. In regards to prophecy, Paul mentions that the Jews still have a place. He says in what we just read, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Sion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Many pre-tribulationists, because of their dispensationalism, assume that God has to remove the church from the earth so that he can refocus on Israel. It's as if it is impossible for him to multitask in their understanding. And this is probably the most subtle reason many pre-tribulationists resist any change in their end times understanding. They fear some heresy, such as dominion theology, will creep in if they crack the door just a little to examine anything. All the while, there are many conservative evangelical Christians who simply do not make the assumptions that dispensational pre-tribulation teachers do. However, if we are to arbitrarily assume that the church must be removed because it must end its, quote, dispensation before the next event in the prophetic timeline must happen, namely, God turning his attention back to physical Israel for the tribulation to start, then we find ourselves with some simple problems. Firstly, it is manifest from history that God does not have any problem operating with unregenerate Israel and the church at the same time. Forty years after the resurrection of Christ and the beginning of the new covenant in his blood, a prophetic event regarding physical Israel was fulfilled. The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed. Christ prophesied this in Matthew 24, 1-2. This event that was prophesied to an audience of believers was fulfilled 40 years after the church had begun, separate from unregenerate Israel. Clearly, then, God has no problem operating with unregenerate Israel and the church at the same time. Israel was judged and dispersed for their rejection of the Messiah, and the church grew as an entity by people believing the gospel. God was still dealing with both unregenerate Israel and the church simultaneously. Secondly, prophecies regarding Israel are still being fulfilled even though they are still in unbelief. Paul tells us that Israel as a nation has been temporarily turned over to blindness, Romans 11.25, even though individuals were still being saved, Romans 11.1. Consider the fact, then, that Israel has been regathered into their land again, as the prophet Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 37.1-14. In May of 1948, only three years after the horrors of the Holocaust, the Jews were brought into their own land again and became a nation. If God is still fulfilling prophecies about Israel, physical Israel, when they are in unbelief, while the church is still in prominence, then why is it a stretch for some to believe that God will fulfill prophecies regarding unbelieving Israel during the tribulation with the church present? If anything, this alone shows the baseless nature of asserting that the church must be removed for God to do anything else with Israel prophetically. It's, it's just not true. The Lord did not have to remove the church prior to 1948 for him to fulfill prophecy with Israel coming into their land again. 
It stands to reason, then, that he does not need to remove the church to fulfill any other prophecies regarding Israel either. Now, in addition to this, if we were to assume that the claims by dispensational pre-tribulation teachers regarding this are true, they are still left with a problem. There are still non-Israelite believers in the tribulation period. Revelation 7.14, Revelation 12.17. Just as we saw that this was a problem for... An, in a different section of this lesson period, when I talk about the not appointed to wrath argument, it's a problem for this one as well. If the church must be removed for God to refocus on Israel during the seven-year tribulation, because God can apparently only focus on one group at a time, then the presence of any other group in the tribulation becomes a problem. Nevertheless, all conservative teachers agree that there are quote-unquote tribulation saints in the tribulation. This contradicts the main point of their argument for the necessary removal of the church, though. Clearly, God does not have a problem multitasking. Even under the Old Covenant, this is obvious, some of the Israelites followed God and some did not. Unless a person is willing to state that all Israelites, by the nature of them being Israelites, were saved under the Old Covenant, then it is manifest that God was dealing with two separate groups at the same time then as well. There was the Israel of God and the unbelieving Jews who were only Jews by physical descendancy. Now this leads to another important point. We must remember that the body of Christ is not Gentile only. There are not saved Jews who do not belong to the body of Christ. In Romans 11, Paul describes Gentile believers as being grafted in to the olive tree of Israel. They do not form their own tree somewhere else. Gentile believers are brought near or nigh by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 2.13, and are not made into their own body. Furthermore, all the saved from the Old Testament are included in the body of Christ. After describing many of the Old Testament acts of faith, the writer of Hebrews concludes with this, Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. He says, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they, without us, should not be made perfect. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was Old Testament saints who rose also, Matthew 27, 52-53. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many believers, followers of the living God from all past to today, and through the tribulation, are part of the same body. There was no scriptural reason to conclude otherwise. The only reason that it has even been considered is because an ism is assumed and the scriptures are interpreted to match. As John Walford said, quote, if, the church if the term church includes saints of all ages, then it is self-evident that the church will go through the tribulation, as all agree that there will be saints in this time of trouble. The above quote from the Dean of Pre-Tribulationism himself makes it clear. Some scholars know that apart from their ism, their system of thought, the scriptural conclusion is self-evident. It cannot be understated, no matter how much it may be denied, that there are underlying reasons for people to desire to not have to go through the tribulation. To think that this along with other factors, cannot influence a teacher's ability to examine doctrines is naive. Cognitive dissonance or confirmational bias is a powerful thing. Take a moment to consider this statement from John Walford. He says, quote, Here the problem is that a post-tribulational rapture is difficult to harmonize with, quote, the blessed hope if the church must go through the great tribulation and many, if not most, in the church are martyred. He says, it is hardly a blessed hope that those who survive will be raptured without dying. Far better it would be for them if they had lived out a normal life in a period prior to the rapture and had gone to heaven through death rather than living through the great tribulation. Wow. I am not trying to attack John Walford with an ad hominem argument. But does Mr. Walford understand the blessed hope at all? The coming of the Lord is not called the blessed hope because it keeps you from going through the tribulation. The church will absolutely go through the tribulation. It is called the blessed hope 
because it is the return of Jesus. And whether he comes sooner or later, Luke 12, 38, it is the fact that he returns that makes the event a blessing and not the timing of it. If anything, those who believers who do endure the tribulation until the end will find his coming far more of a blessing than those today who live in relative peace on their couches. The average believer in North America is not truly looking for his appearing at all. To be sure, many would even consider it to be an interruption of their lives instead of the beginning of them. I honestly find it disturbing how some, not all, pre-tribulation teachers are so fixated on having to not go through the tribulation. As stated elsewhere in a different lesson that I've done, one teacher even said that, quote, the blessed hope would only be the blasted hope, as Tim LaHaye, if the church had to go through the seven-year tribulation. This type of teaching does not help the body of Christ at all. If anything, it only weakens the convictions of believers to not prepare for persecution, whether it is in the tribulation or not. These men, however sincere, are doing nothing but contributing to the end times deception that Paul warned about in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. Quite simply, the destinies of Israel and the church are intertwined. Yes, the physical nation of Israel is still in unbelief, but that is going to change. The remnant of Israel will be delivered, Romans 11, 26 through 27. And it is significant that the foundations and gates of New Jerusalem are named for the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, Revelation 21, 12 and 14. Whether or not God shall distinguish between the unbelievers who survived the tribulation and make them into another nation during the millennium is truly irrelevant to the discussion of a pre-tribulation rapture. It is not necessary to know everything in detail about prophecy to be sure about one thing in particular that is clearly stated. We oftentimes are told what will happen without being sure of how it will unfold. And the more one steps back and simply asks, What does the text say? The easier it is to see that God has no need to remove the church in order to fulfill any prophecy with Israel. Now briefly, does history matter? It is not uncommon for believers to misunderstand why history is brought up. The history of interpretations, the history of when things were first thought of, and so forth. Usually, it's just dismissed out of hand as having nothing to do with biblical interpretation. Dave Hunt, who I do respect for some of the things that he has done. He said this, quote, Books and newsletters have been written to show that a belief in the secret pre-tribulation rapture was popularized by Plymouth Brethren founder J.N. Darby. He presumably picked it up from a false revelation related to a Scottish Pentecostal revival and received by a young woman, Margaret MacDonald, in early 1830. What Margaret MacDonald did or did not mean by her convoluted and vague revelation and what part it played in Darby's thinking may well be of historical interest for those who have the time to pursue such matters. It has, however, nothing whatsoever to do with the controversy between pre- and post-tribulation rapture beliefs. That controversy can only be settled by what the Bible does or doesn't say. That is the only issue. End quote. While I agree with Dave Hunt that the fate of a doctrine or interpretation ultimately rests on whether or not it is found in Scripture— His statement is a tacit admission of the charge's validity, since he does not deny it. Or, as may be the case, he did not have the time to, quote, pursue such matters himself. That means he didn't investigate the matter. You know, just dismiss what you disagree with. However, the historicity of an interpretation does matter. If something goes back to somebody who spouted a demonic statement, or somebody who was possessed, and it influenced Christian thought. Does that not matter? If something is new to Christianity, and 160 years is indeed new to a several thousand-year-old religion, then it is suspect to say the least. And I have to emphasize that the history of this interpretation matters because, frankly, pastors and teachers are being hypocrites. Imagine, if you will, that it came out that the deity of Christ wasn't taught or even formulated until 1830. This would immediately overthrow Christianity. Why? Because if the original disciples didn't teach it, then it was a manufactured idea, later added. That's exactly what atheists try to say today. If the disciples who knew Jesus, who knew his teachings, and who proclaimed his teaching, didn't believe he was God manifest in the flesh, then that would completely undo the doctrine. 
But we have historical proof, not only from the Bible, but even outside the New Testament, that proves historically that the early disciples immediately began proclaiming Jesus as the risen Son of God. Gary Habermas specifically wrote, as proven in debates against leading atheist philosophers like Anthony Flew, that the Christians started started preaching it 50 days after the resurrection. He's actually got that down to a science. See, preachers use history when the resurrection is questioned to prove that it was not a later addition or interpretation to biblical Christianity. How then are the same pastors and teachers completely dismissing history when it contradicts what they teach? This is called hypocrisy. We'll, we'll refer to history of a doctrinal interpretation if we agree with it, and if we don't agree with what history says, then we'll just reject facts and keep our interpretation. Congratulations, you're doing exactly what the Pharisees did. What is then quipped by pre-tribulationists is that, well, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity wasn't created until centuries after the Bible was written. This is an argument that is repeated out of ignorance. John Walverb said it. People blindly repeating what they were told by others without critically examining it. John Walbert, like I said, as well as many others, said this in his book, The Rapture Question. I've seen it repeated. And this is absurdly false, though, when you actually frame the issue correctly. You see, if the Trinity was not taught in the Bible, then you could never use Scripture to teach it. Plain and simple. Nevertheless, those same teachers who say it was not created until centuries later, quote Zechariah 12.10, or Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, or Ephesians, any time they're asked as well as many other passages where the doctrine of the Trinity can be clearly demonstrated to be scriptural. You see, that's the crux of the matter. The substance of the doctrine is in the Bible. The ideas necessary to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity are in the text itself. Just study the Greek of John 1.1, and you can understand the Trinity is biblical. Even the Jewish rabbis before the time of Christ understood that there was something about the oneness nature of God that had plurality, the echad they talked about in the Shema. They even com- commented on the Metatron, their name for the angel of the Lord, and commented about his unique relationship with God. The Trinity is not new. Only the word Trinity was new. The theological terminologies of per- person, homoousia, homoousin, and those sorts of Greek terms that were used later to articulate the doctrine, it wasn't needed until the biblical understanding was challenged from Arianism. On the contrary, though, as many quotes we have looked at show, have shown, and I can give you dozens more, the very idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is absent from all of Christianity until John Darby in the 1830s. In addition to that, even pre-tribulation scholars have admitted that it is not found in the scriptures in any explicit way. The one thing that is needed to prove a pre-tribulation rapture is a single verse that clearly says that the church is removed prior to the tribulation. Let's consider some of those quotes again. Quote, one objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that no one passage of Scripture teaches the two aspects of a second coming separated by the tribulation. This is true. It's Tim LaHaye, Mr. Left Behind. Here's another quote. The pre-trib theory is not taught directly in Scripture, and pre-tribulationists still have problems to solve in regard to their position. That's Richard Mayhew. Uh, another Richard Mayhew quote, Perhaps the position of pre-tribulationism is correct, although its proof at times has been logically invalid or at least unconvincing. Here's John Walverb. He said, Pre-tribulationism is an induction rather than an explicit statement of the Bible. Another John Walverb quote, Pre-tribulationists have strained to find some specific reference in support of their views. Most adherents concede that there is no explicit reference. Now, I know the unintentional arrogance that comes from being committed to a particular set of doctrinal views. I have gone through the humiliating pain of having to be corrected about dispensationalism as well as other beliefs that are completely absent from the text of Scripture. But I also know that people are stubborn. When the scholars who spent their lives studying, preaching, teaching, and writing the books on pre-tribulationism that everyone else quotes from openly say that there is not a single passage that explicitly teaches the doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture, what makes anyone else think they have got it figured out? 
Now, I'll repeat what I said. The one thing necessary to prove a pre-tribulation rapture is a single passage that explicitly states the timing of the rapture is before the tribulation. A string of secondary interpretations and inferences from throughout the Bible that you believe makes one necessary is not biblical teaching. It's called eisegesis. You're not getting your doctrine from the text. All that I need to prove post-tribulationism is that the church is on the earth prior to the tribulation, that the tribulation starts on the same earth, and that there are no explicit references to God taking the church off the earth prior to its beginning. It's logical. All three of these are admitted by the best pre-trib scholars. It's no contest to anyone who is honest with the matter. Now, next week, we're going to start going over the arguments for a pre-trib rapture. We're going to start with the big ones. I'm not afraid. This is easy to deal with. The first one that we're going to discuss is Revelation 3.10, and you're going to see how hilariously one-sided this issue is.